0: Uh, We are in our series entitled, Men at Work, and we've been examining the Son of Man at Work and how the Son of Man paved the way for us to get to God. And I would encourage you to turn with me into your Bibles, hopefully you have one, I would really hope that you do, to the book of Mark, which is in the New Testament, Matthew Mark. Um, It is the shortest out of all the Gospels, and we have been going this for the past several weeks. We'll be continuing to go through this all the way and through spring. Some have felt we're, why are we rushing through Mark? We're not rushing through. I mean, we're taking 30-some weeks to go through a book. And I know some people like to really focus on one or two verses at a time. That's great. But we're trying to honor Mark, what Mark was doing. As we mentioned, Mark has about 478 verses. And 40 times in those 478 verses, it's immediately. He uses the word immediately. Mark is moving. He's constantly moving. And we wanted to just focus on Mark, capture the essence of Mark, and not get into Matthew or Luke or John. We wanted to really just focus on the, what we call the biblical theology of the book of Mark. Now, some of, that, some of you, that might be a new term. You might have heard the term theology, which is the study of God. For others, you know the term biblical, just the study of the Bible. But a biblical theology, it's a little bit like uh, when you're in high school and you had to write a paper for a class. And you had to write a thesis statement, and then you had to prove that thesis statement. You had an idea, and you were writing out that idea. Each gospel is writing out, they have their own thesis statement, and they're writing from a certain angle with a certain point in a certain audience to show something specific. And each gospel has its own type of theme. Matthew is looking at Jesus as king, as, and he's writing to a Jewish audience to show that Jesus is the fulfillment, he is the coming, uh, the, a messiah whereas Luke is writing more from a Gentile perspective. He was a physician, Dr. Luke was, and he has, he's looking at him as the, the Son of Man. He's looking at him as the suffering servant. Where, and John, he's presenting this cosmic Christ because he's writing to an entire Gentile audience. Now Mark, as we've talked about, is just the facts. And he is, he is really moving through there. He is showing out who Jesus is. He's writing to an audience in Rome. And we've been talking for the past several weeks, really looking and digging into Mark as we're capturing the essence of what's going on. And last week, we talked about how God gives us peace in the new year, how God speaks peace in the midst of life situations. And I know that many of us, we need peace. I mean, we're into 2012 already, and some of us have already made resolutions. How many of you made resolutions? Now, how many of you have already neglected and quit your resolutions? Oh, there you go. Somebody, at least someone's honest. Um, now, as we're, we're talking about how God, we talked last week about how God speaks peace to the new year. And sometimes we, we hear that in our minds, but then we find ourselves in the midst of a situation. I don't know about you, but we go, God, where are you? I, one of the things I love about the Word of God is that it's brutally honest. It's raw. Like the psalmist, when the psalmist says, How long, O Lord, how long? How long must we endure this? Where are you, God, in the midst of my situation? I don't know if you've ever felt like that. I have in my own life. When I was four years old, my father died. For years. I said, God, where were you in the midst of that? Why did you take my dad? Why? What was, that? What was, the, what was the purpose of that? Why did I have to watch my mom cry every Christmas? Because she was so lonely. Why? Why? Why did I have to watch my mom struggle as a single parent for several years and dealing with rebellious children who were just struck and shocked by the death of my dad? My dad was a believer in Jesus. He came to know Jesus a year before that I was born. He was dedicated to the Lord. He was, my earliest memories were being in church and worshiping the Lord. I mean, he had this radical faith. I mean, he, he just really wanted to follow God. He had a faith that was beyond anything that I'd ever seen as a child, and yet God took him. Where was God in the midst of that? I mean, we've all had situations where we've gone through in life. I mean, there was one Sunday morning, I was uh, pastoring in a Chicago uh, Midwest Bible Church in Chicago, and I was getting ready to preach, and my wife was in Florida, and I get pulled out of the morning service, and we, found out that we had just found out a few weeks before that my wife was pregnant, but she started to miscarry and had to go to the hospital. Where was God? Have you ever felt that way? Maybe you've just lost your job, and you go, where's God? Maybe your marriage is on the rocks, and you go, where's God? Maybe you're dealing with a rebellious child or grandchild. Where's God? Maybe... Maybe you're going through something right now in your career or your life. Maybe it's a health report. Maybe it's a, a job loss. Maybe it's a difficulty at work. Maybe it's, it's just you're tired. Maybe you're single and you're tired of being single and you want to be married and, and everything just seems to be going wrong. You're like, where's God in the midst of this? Even as a church, we're going through a difficult time right now as a church. We're going through a difficult transition. We've had some people leave. And that's difficult. That's painful because that's family. And sometimes we stop and we go, where's God in the middle of this? What's going on, God? But you know, God is in the midst of us. No matter what we go through, He's there with us. We talked about that last week. God is there with us and He speaks peace into our life. And God expects us, though, to continually to follow Him even when we don't understand. Last week, we heard the story of the medical missionary... Dr. Helen Rosevere. For those that were here um, or weren't here, let me fill you in a little bit right before we jump into our text. But Helen Roosevelt was a medical missionary in the Belgian Congo in the 1950s and the 1960s. And a guerrilla group uh, overthrew the government and for five months she was held captive where she was brutally raped and tortured over and over and over again. And I'm sure in the midst of her situation, she was asking where's God? Every time she got hit again or beat again or struck, where's God? And we we heard some of her words last week and I want to repeat them again. Because she, even in the midst of all that, she knew that God was with her. And she said, and I'm going to quote this, she said, One particularly savage night, beaten up and kicked by a group of rebels, driven down the corridor of my home, The Lord seemed to whisper to me, they are not beating you, but me and you. These are not your sufferings, but mine. All I ask of you is the loan of your body. Furthermore, my heart understood that He was asking me, can you thank me for trusting you with this experience, even if I never tell you why? And then I sought to whisper back, yes, I don't understand what you are doing or who will ever be blessed by this, but if it helps to fulfill your purpose, yes, I thank you. Dear God, for trusting me in this way, the consciousness of His loving arms around me and His peace in my heart, even in the midst of wickedness and suffering, the sense of being privileged to share in the fellowship of His sufferings was truly almost unbelievable. God was with her. Francis Schaeffer, the great Christian apologist and thinker in the mid-20th century, wrote a book entitled, God is There and He is Not Silent. God is there in the midst of the situation you're facing. And He's not silent. He's there. And he wants you and he wants us all as a body and as individuals to trust him, to have faith in him and watch him work. See, God has this way of doing things that he wants us to walk by faith and not by sight. It's a lot easier to walk by sight, is it not? Have you ever seen someone, or if you've ever been blindfolded and have someone lead you around, how do you walk? You're very, very careful because you don't trust that person very well. But see, God wants us to trust Him. He wants us to walk by faith and not by sight. And we see that when we come to Him in faith, God does some amazing things. Amazing things. And today we're going to look at three episodes. Three episodes of faith. Two episodes of just amazing, encouraging faith, and one episode that is a warning to us all about a serious lack of faith, and how we can come to God and how we should not come to God. So today I would encourage you to turn with me, if you haven't already, to the book of Mark. We're in Mark chapter 5. We're going to be taking a lot of verses today. We're going to start in Mark chapter 5, verse 21, and moving all the way through into Mark chapter 6, verse 6. It's our tradition here the Village Bible Church to stand for the reading of God's Word. It's a way of honoring God. So please stand with me as we read the Word of God together. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about Him, and He was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing Him, He fell at His feet and implored Him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And He went with Him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? Where is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come to you needy people. Lord, we are desperate. We need you. We need your presence. We need you to speak into our life. We need to know that you are near, that you are the God who is there in the midst of each and every situation in which we find ourselves. Lord, we know that You are the good God. You are the forgiving God. You are the one and only God. You are the thrice holy God. And Lord, we come to You now asking You to speak peace into our life. Lord, speak truth. Help us to apply this to our heart that we might walk in a manner that is pleasing to You. Lord, if there's sin or unbelief in our heart, please bring it to the surface and remove it. Lord, if there is a step of faith that we need to do, please... Touch our heart. Let us know that You are near. Tell us through Your Word as Your Spirit speaks to us what we are to do and how we are to live in such a way to give You glory. So Lord, please speak to us. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. You may be seated. What I'd like to do, first of all, is give a bit of a definition of faith and walk through these episodes, these scenes, one by one. Now, the Bible gives us a definition of faith. Who knows where it's at? In Hebrews chapter 11. Very good. Very good Bible students. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. And we read that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, later on, just a few verses down the line, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, we read that we have to have faith if we want to please God. The author of Hebrews states to us, And without faith, it is impossible to please Him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. Now we see a man coming to Jesus in faith. This is an individual who's been confronted with one of the greatest pains and tragedies in life. So what I would first like us to see as we look through our passage today, we can see that God is there for us in a a variety of situations, but here we see that God is there for us in the desperate faith of a respected man. That's your first point. You can write that down, that He is there in the desperate faith of a respected man. Now, if you look within the text, you see a few details that really draw out, and I want to make sure you keep your eyes on the text. Jesus we pick it up in verse 21, when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side. Now, it's talking about the Sea of Galilee. He had just been around the Decapolis, what is known as the Ten Cities, which is a primarily Gentile region on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, he is moving north, up north, a little bit to the northwest, and he's coming up to where he was before. And it's, it's a Capernaum, it's Nazareth, it's his hometown. Uh, predominantly, he's coming to the region of Galilee, not uh, Capernaum, but he's in uh, Nazareth, With his in Galilee. And Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side. A great crowd gathered about him. Word about Jesus was out. I mean, and, and people are just going to him. A crowd comes to him. And it's, it, I mean, they're all attracted. They want to hear about Jesus. They'd heard about the miracles that he had done. And people with all of their ailments, all of their troubles, all of their problems are coming to Jesus in a lot of ways for healing. And Jesus, as Jesus is coming off the boat, the crowd gathers to him. And and you can just imagine, people just came from everywhere. There's Jesus, there's Jesus. Word just spread like wildfire. I don't know if you've ever seen a crowd like that operate. When I was in Israel in 1998, we went to the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall, which is close. It's one of the last remaining walls of the original uh, or the temple area. And as we were there, I, I was dining with my guide. We were actually overlooking the whaling wall because we were walking around. He was giving me a private tour of Jerusalem. And I'm looking out, and I see this car pull up, and a, and a guy get out. And the next thing I know, out of everywhere, all these black coats, long beards, the, these Jewish like students, are just flock, and, and it's instantaneous, out of it was like a magnet. And the next thing you know, that whole crowd comes together right at the face of the car and then walks across together to the wall. And it was a very well-respected rabbi. And these guys are clamoring just to get the attention of, of him. Now, imagine Jesus. I mean, Jesus is not just a well-respected rabbi. This is a healer. And people are, are coming from all around. They're just trying to, to touch him, to get near him. So this, this crowd is there. Um, and then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, And seeing him, he fell at his feet. Now, we can see that this man is desperate for for three reasons. First of all, we read that it involved an impending death. This man's desperate. He's the ruler of the synagogue, which means that he is kind of in charge of the local church. Each town had its own synagogue. Most people went to the temple, but not everyone could travel a long distance to the temple. So they had local synagogues where they would gather and worship and read from the Torah on the Sabbath day. And the Jewish men would come, and these Jewish synagogue rulers would organize the services and the readings. And he's a very well-respected man in the community. But his 12-year-old daughter is dying. It's an impending death. And when you're faced with the reality of death, all pretense is off. Especially with your child. I mean, I don't know if you've ever been around someone that's just on the verge of death, like an accident or a tragedy. I mean, it's, there, there's no pretense. There's, there's no... Doing other stuff, it's immediate. You're focused. It's a laser-like focus. I, I'd mentioned before, uh, last week. I don't know why I got back into this again, but I started watching The Deadliest Catch. Okay, ever watched that show? And I, right now I'm just addicted to that show. I, I don't agree with everything in it, but it's just the real-life nature of this. And and I'm watching uh, this episode where one of the boats is called the Time Bandit. Is looking out at another boat and they're seeing a guy trying to secure these crab pots and they're 30 feet high and he's on the edge of the boat and the waves are just going up and you see the boat go up and go down and you see the wave even lap this guy as he's just strapped on and he's trying to tie this And next thing you know you see a wave go up and that guy's gone and you see the crew just immediately ding 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 ding, man overboard I mean these guys just went right into mode They're they're strapping on their survival suits they're turning around the boat because in the in the Bering Sea you only have a few minutes You only have uh, like 10 minutes because what happens is all the blood retreats because it's so cold and it goes around your heart to protect it and keep it warm because as soon as your heart goes down to 86 degrees, you're dead. So you can't even control your limbs. And this guy doesn't even have a survival suit on. And they're doing everything in their power to get to this man. I mean, they're desperate. And they're doing everything in their power to get to him. And by God's grace, he was saved. They pulled him out of the water and he, he says, you saved my life. It was just unbelievable. Now, you can imagine this desperation. I mean, this was, they were trying to reach a man who, who had just gone overboard, but this is a man who's, it's his daughter. This is a personal association. Can you imagine if you found out your child had this impending sickness and was ready to die? And he comes down. I mean, we see that it's, he's desperate. We can see that there's an impending death. And we see that he has a humble demeanor. It allowed for a humble demeanor. Look at verse 22 with me. He falls at Jesus' feet. This is a well respected man. You don't just go fall down before the Jewish carpenters. This is a religious teacher in the community, but it, all pretense is off. It's I, I need my daughter, please. <laughs> He's begging. Please. A humble demeanor. And he approaches God humbly. Now, here's a question for us Do we approach God humbly? You know, I have thought about this. I meet people and I understand that people have some comfortability with certain things and not other things. And and if in a statistics are not statistics, if if the little polls are right, they say people fear two things more than death. Did you know that? Two things more than death, which really surprised me. I can't believe that. One is paying taxes. And the second is public speaking. Public speaking. And, and, and I, I have a hard time with that, but it's amazing to me that people have fears of public speaking. When tragedy occurs, there's no more fear. They have no problem speaking up because tragedies happen and they're desperate and they're going to speak up. See, God wants us to come to Him desperately. He wants us to come to Him and, and when we're going through a trial, to cling to Him, to come to Him and come humbly. See, I, I struggle sometimes with when we sing certain songs in church and we don't do what the song says us do when we're sitting and we're singing a song about standing. Talking about raising our hands or kneeling before the Lord our God, our Maker. I mean, in Scripture, you see one's body position reveals a lot about the intention of the heart. Now, there are some that go through the motions without the heart, but you also see us some people that have the heart and then they show themselves in the motion. You see the angels bowing down, the angels prostrate, fall. You see people laying completely down, face down before the ground. You see the psalmist saying, come, let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our Maker, which is a command, it's an imperative. We're to be kneeling. We're to assume a a humble position in the sight of God. Are we doing that? Are we doing that in our homes? Are we doing that privately? Are we coming to God desperately? Showing that God is, that He is the Lord of our life? It's a question we each have to ask ourselves. So we see, though, this man, he comes with a humble demeanor. And then he does something in verse 23. Look at that. And he implored him, and implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her that she may be made well and live. See, such desperation resulted in a persistent desire. Desire. See, when you're you're in desperate need and you have a desperate desire, you're going to keep coming again and again. You know what? God's not going to say, by the way, I'm done with you. Quit bothering me. God doesn't do that. God doesn't get annoyed like we do. God doesn't do that. God wants us to come to Him. He wants us to come to Him desiring, seeking, just like Jacob rustled with God. He wants us to rustle, to hold on, to cling to Him, saying, Lord, bless me. I need you! I need you in this situation! And that's what the faith that we're to have, we're to come God desperately with a persistent desire, knowing that no matter what we go through, only He can answer all of our questions. No one can bring harmony and unity to us as individuals or as a church except Him. Only in Jesus can we have that. We must come to Him humbly, pleading with Him, We are going through a tough time, even financially in the economy. I know many different families. You're wondering, where is the money going to come from? How am I going to buy groceries? I just was laid off. The unemployment is running out. How am I going to get through this? How am I going to survive? But when we come to God desperately, God is going to supply all of our needs. He'll be there for you. He will help you in your time of need. But are we coming to Him desperate and in need? Are we doing that? And this man who was well-respected, he had one desire, and that was to have Jesus intercede in his life. You don't see anything taking him away from his task. Everything else was secondary. His work, his hobbies, his friendships, his successes, his pursuits. Money didn't mean anything at that moment in time. Status was out the door, and he came desperately to see Jesus, and so must we. You see, it's in the desperate times of life that we shed our self-sufficiency and come to God. We abandon all of it, to come and fall at His feet. But it's in the times of these greatest desperations that we see God work His greatest ways. That's when God works greatest, my brothers and sisters. That's what He does. He delights when we come to Him and we depend on Him. And He does the greatest things when it's the darkest hour. That's what God does. I mean, I'm amazed by that to see how God works so sovereignly in our lives, but we have to walk by faith. It's like John Ortberg's book. He wrote, and it says, if you want to walk on water, you've got to get out of the boat. If you want to walk by faith and see God provide, I mean, if you want to see God provide, you've got to walk by faith. That's what you've got to do. We all have to do that, as individuals and as a church. I know that there was a time in my life when I was pastoring at Midwest Bible Church in Chicago. I was the assistant pastor there. I'd been there for about five years. when I Since God just really pressed upon my heart, that three separate things. Number one, I was to leave where I was at. And I would promised the church I would be, have been there between four and eight years. And here was year five, and I'm sensing God just really working on my heart that I was to leave where I was at, that I was to be, uh, go to, back to get some theological education, to be a better pastor, to be a better minister, to be a better shepherd. And I, I, I sensed that, I just didn't know where. But at the same time, I was, I was hearing him tell me that I was also to be in full-time ministry, and I didn't know how to work that. I didn't know how all those three were to go together. I didn't know, was I to get the job, and then quit the church, and then go and find the school then, once I moved to that place? Or was I to find the school first, and then quit? And, and what was the order? And, and for months, I agonized. I agonized for, for months on my decision. I found a school that I thought was the best school and I sent all my application, I did all my, my materials and I sent it to them and I, I was perusing their website and I saw some stuff that was outside of my theological grid. Made me uncomfortable. So I sent them a letter and I said, I'm done, I'm sorry, I can't come there, I just, I'm not comfortable with that and can you uh, just you know, throw away my application materials? And they said, well, we're sorry to hear that but we're just going to hold on to it and uh, you know, just see what God does. I said, okay, fine, but that's not what's going to happen. And God's got something different for me. And for the next few months, I go and I visit different churches and just see if God's opening the door. And I meet some great people, and God's speaking, but yet there's no peace in my life. And I'm like, what's wrong, God? What, 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 what am I doing wrong? And by this time, it's, uh, it's August. So several months have gone by, and I'm miserable because I know that I'm supposed to be doing these three things. And I call my father-in-law, who's a very wise man, and I'm talking to him, and, and he says to me, Travis, you missed the door go back and ask God to open the door for you. So I said, okay. So I prayed, I said, Lord, please just open the door that I missed. So the next morning I woke up and there was an email from the seminary. I said, okay, that's where I'm going. Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary, it's in, it's in South Hamilton, Massachusetts. Billy Graham was instrumental in, in seeing it as an evangelical institution and it's one of the most premier uh, schools for evangelicalism. I write all these different books, scholars come out of that and I was really humbled just to be able to be around these people so much smarter than I am. And, and I, I had a great time, and God was really working on me. But before I even arrived there, I, th- I said, Lord, I know you called me to, to leave where I'm at, and uh, I've also, you've also called me to preach. So I turned in my resignation, but I, and I, it was hard to go. It was a great church. I loved the people there. Got really close to them. I mean, that's where I, I met my, we got married while I was at serving at that church. I had my first child. Just Great things. And, and I thought, Lord, where do you want me to be at next? I, I know you want me to be ministry. And I started applying for all these churches in New England, and I kept getting doors shut in my face. So came time to the date we moved. So I didn't have a job. Didn't have any money. And we just loaded up the van and drove to New England. We had a temporary place we found online. We didn't know anyone. I didn't know anybody. I didn't have a church to serve in. And some people had just given me some money that they, God had laid upon their heart to give. So we get to, to New England. We move into this place. And um, now what? How am I supposed to live? How am I supposed to provide for my family? We're here. I'm walking by faith now. Within 24 hours after arriving, I, I get an email. It's from a church. I call the church. This is uh, within a little over 24 hours, so I get the email within 24 hours, a little over 24 hours after that. I'm dining with the search committee in the church, parsonage. Five weeks later, I've been called as their pastor. But here, it's another another faith issue. It's not what I was expecting, because our prayer, as we prayed, we wanted to serve in a church, we said, God, we want to be in a church where only you can receive glory. A lot of these churches that we see within the world today are built around one man and one personality. And the only person that it's supposed to be built around is Jesus. That's what it's about. That's what we're here for. It's not about me. It's not about any any other one person. It's about Jesus Christ. That's Him and that's it. Because I can't save. Tim at all can't save. We can't. None of our elders can save a person. We can't forgive sins. We're just servants. So we're we're in this church and uh, the church had been through... The worst times that you can imagine. They'd fired their previous two pastors. The first pastor, right after he arrived, divided the church. Within six months after his arrival, he took half the church with him to go to a church plant. It was awful. And then they hired another guy. The church had started off with 140 people, about the size that we are. And The church went down to 70 after the first pastor. The second pastor came, and they didn't really look at his character, and he was an angry man. Where he didn't control his anger, his anger controlled him. They fired him, and the church went down further. So when we arrived, there were 35 people. The average age was 62, and the average length of membership in the church was 38 years. These people had been the backbone of the church. They'd been through it thick and thin. And they said, we have $80,000 in the bank and we're going to close the doors in two years if things don't change. And there was a daughter church that was planted there, a Slavic church of immigrants from Russia and Ukraine, the former Soviet Union. And they said, we're ready to hand the keys over to them. And they said, can we grow? And I said, God's in the business of doing miracles. If God can have a 90-year-old woman in labor and delivery, he can do this. He can do this. They said, we do have the pieces in place. I said, no, no. We have nothing right. (laughs) We don't have the right facility. We don't have the right personnel. We don't have any advertising. We don't have any of that stuff. But you know what we have? is a God who hears our prayers. So we, we did make some updates to the facility. And, but after that, we started praying. And I said, we're going to pray. We're going to have prayer meetings. We're going to have all-night prayer meetings. We're going to do everything in our power. We're going to walk by faith because we're going to see God work and God do something that only God can do. And then God started transforming. I mean, it was difficult even being in the morning services. Like, we have a couple singers and a piano player. Well, we had a piano player when I started off at that church, but she was getting married, and she was moved away for a little while. So we had no piano player. So we, we couldn't find anybody. We advertised and we got this girl who was, uh, she was 16 year old sixteen years old, she had just come from Ukraine, didn't speak any English, didn't know how to play piano, but she knew how to play violin. That doesn't really help though when you're trying to play piano. So, but she agreed through a translator to be our piano player. Those first few Sundays were awful. I mean, it was, we were really living the make joyful noise. To the Lord It was bad, because she, she didn't understand what we were saying, and she was just learning accords, but you know God was at work. God was doing something that only He could do. And then God brought in a, another couple from the, the school, and, and God brought others, other people starting to come. and then next thing, you know we, the, the girl becomes I mean her skill catches up because she understood different things and she practiced at it. She learned English. And next thing you know, we have not just a piano player and Melissa and I singing, but we have two praise teams and I'm not even involved in it. And, and people are coming and people are getting baptized and people are following Jesus. You know why? Because the people humbled themselves at the most desperate hour to seek God's face and God answered. That's what happens. When you honor God, God will honor you. And in New England, people, the churches there were horrid. I mean, you've got people that are practicing homosexuality, being pastors of churches. They're not preaching the Word of God. They're not preaching on sin. I mean, here, as I've talked before, I see people that have great convictions and they're following the Lord. And there it was, why do you believe in God? It didn't make any sense. But I know that when we honor God, God will honor us. And as we come to Him in the most desperate hour as we're going through a financial crisis as as a country and even as a church and as we're going through all these difficult times that when we humble ourselves and seek His face and get on our knees and pray that God will answer. God will show Himself in the most desperate situations. That's what God delights in doing as the Word of God says, the promise that you will seek Me and find Me when you seek Me with all your heart. Are we seeking God with all of our hearts? What are we doing? That's what God does when we seek Him. When we're desperately seeking His face, He shows Himself. That's what this man did, this Jairus, this ruler. He came seeking God's face. Are we seeking God's face or are we too busy talking about everything else going on? Turning people away from Christ, not turning them to. Are we praying and pursuing God together, or are we gossiping? Are we seeking to be comfortable, or are we slandering? This man just comes to God, seeking him desperately. Now, God is there for us in the desperate faith of a righteous man, but we also see that he is there in the determined faith of a rejected woman. Because see, what happens in the story, and if we look within the story, look at it with me, you have this ruler coming to Jesus, begging him in verse twenty-three, Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be well and live. And he went with him. But as he's moving, this great crowd followed him, and they thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years, who had suffered much under many physicians. Now we can see in the desperate, this determined faith of this rejected woman, we can see several things. We can see how determined she was. First of all, she was determined in her condition because she was hurting. She'd been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She'd gone to all kinds of doctors, all kinds of experts, and she doesn't get better, she gets worse. And not only was she suffering physically, but socially and emotionally. Because when you are subject to bleeding within Jewish law, the book of Leviticus says that you have to walk around all the time saying, unclean, before you walk in a room, unclean. Unclean! Unclean! And that let everybody know not to touch you. So she had no one that she could even touch. Can you imagine going for 12 years and not hugging someone? Not shaking a hand? Not getting getting an embrace, not having a kiss. I mean, and face it, women are more social creatures than men are. Some men would be like, I would be fine with that. Don't touch me. I mean, truth be told, there are some men out there that probably should say unclean, because you smell. I'm in the shower. But this woman is saying unclean, so she's cut off socially, she's cut, and emotionally what she's dealing with, and she's at the end of herself. Now, you can see in her, her condition where she's at. But you can see how determined she is by the cure she seeks. That's the second point we're throwing up on the board there. By the cure she seeks. Now, I don't know about you, but the last idea for a cure in my mind would be to touch someone's garment. Now, you get an idea, or we get an idea here by looking at the text, how determined she was. Because she's she's with these guys that are just coming around trying to get to Jesus, but she can't even touch him. That's how close it is. But she's thinking, if I, I can't get to him, but if I can touch his garment. Now, not only is she, she, t- she trying to touch his garment, the cure that she's seeking, but she has now, think about what she's done. Remember, she's supposed to be yelling unclean so people would clear out of the way. Do you think she's yelled unclean? These people don't know she's unclean. Now, if they found out she was unclean, what would happen? they pick up rocks, stone her. So she's taking her life in her hand, but she's, she's determined nothing is going to stop her from getting to Jesus. See, that's what we're to be doing, is getting close to Jesus. That's what we as a body need to be doing, getting close to Jesus. If we can just get close to Jesus, He'll take care of it all. He'll make everything clear. If we humble ourselves and seek His face, if we start to fast, if we start to pray, if we start to be bold and ask God to be bold, and we, we start to come to God, laying out our hearts, just totally laying everything out before him and asking God to intervene, he will. But are we doing that as a body? Are we praying together? Are we pursuing God together? Are we seeking his face? I am so glad that we have some men and some women getting at different times to pray to seek God's face, but we need to be doing it more and more and not just paying lip service to it and not getting together to talk about prayer, but to pray. I've been in prayer meetings. We spent 45 minutes talking about who to pray for and five minutes praying for them. That's not it. We're showing up. We're going to pray. I mean, I, and, and I don't know if you've ever been to an all-night prayer meeting. It's hard. You're going around. The first 15 minutes, you've prayed out your entire prayer vocabulary. But that's when God starts to work. I mean, God never said prayer was going to be easy. God never said that prayer was going to be a giant moon bounce where you're floating around back and forth. He never said that. He said it's going, to be, it's going to be work. It's going to be hard. You're going to have to focus your mind. I don't know about you, but when I pray, that's when everything, that's when the devil comes. The devil comes in. There are other times where it's just my mind's wandering. I start thinking about everything else, and I go, okay, I'll do that real quick, and I've got to come back to prayer. But We need to be seeking His face. We've got to get close to Jesus, not just as indiv- just as individuals. But as a church, and as a church, so we can see the determined faith of this woman in her condition, in her cure, and in her confession. Confession. Now let's look. Let's look back at the text. Verse 27. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind Him in the crowd and touched His garment. For she said, if I touch even His garments... I mean, the fact that she could even think that that it would cure her is beyond me. I will be made well. And immediately the flood of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? Now this is a very interesting uh, statement, a question that Jesus asks, that's kind of baffled theologians, because there are times that we see Jesus knowing everything going on around him, You see that in his interaction with Nathanael. He meets Nathanael and he says he saw him under the tree when he was far away from him, not in sight's view. And there's times where Jesus generally doesn't know what's going on. And here, it's generally, he knows something happened. He knows power went out from him, but he doesn't know who. He said, who touched my garments? And you see it within the Greek that he really doesn't know. Who touched me? But he knew something happened. Some power went out from me. And the disciples, and you can imagine the whole crowd, and they're moving back and forth. They're like, what do you mean who touched you? What do you mean? Are you nuts? Come on, look, everybody's trying to touch you. he's like, no, power has gone out from me. Now, I can imagine this woman's confession at this moment in time because she knew, I mean, remember, if she admits that she was unclean, her life is at risk. But see, she knew. She'd, the blood had dried up. She knew she'd been cured. now, And if she knew that if I touch, just by touching his garment, I'm cured, he's definitely going to know who I am. Why wouldn't he know that? So she, she confesses to him. Look at verse 33. The woman, knowing what had happened, came in fear and trembling... And you can imagine her face. And you can imagine a holy hush coming over the crowd. And then, I mean, as she falls down, that means all these people that have been bustling up around her all now have cleared away so that Jesus can see her. And you can imagine what her face was like. Can you imagine the anguish? The pain, the lines of Being alienated for years, to being isolated, to being going through all of these difficulties, just she'd come to the end of her rope, and she's experiencing all of this emotion at that moment in time, and to see the tears coming down and the freedom and the joyous wonder to come across her face. And she tells them the whole story, the whole truth, as we see within verse 33. And then what does Jesus say to her? "Daughter, your faith has made you well." Go in peace and be healed of your disease. See, there are different kinds of faith within Scripture. There's saving faith, the faith that we have to have to trust in Jesus for salvation. But then there's a thing we call conditional faith. This is conditional faith is that God operates in proportion to how much His people believe and trust in Him. So if I were to ask you in the United States of America, which we're a very religious country, do we have a lot of faith? We're not seeing God do a lot of work. Why isn't that? Why isn't that? I mean, we talk a lot about it. I mean, you see God actively at work within other countries and other cultures in pretty powerful ways. and I do think that God is active in our country today, but I think he, I mean, we have more resources than anybody. If we took all the money that was given by churches in the United States, we could take care of world hunger the, so many times over. Think about that. That's how much affluence we have in our country. That's a pretty phenomenal thing. We are poor stewards. and We're going to be judged accordingly for everything God's entrusted to our care. So we have to come to God and say, God, use me. We come determined. God, use me. Use me. And she comes determined to get a hold of Jesus. And we see that determination played out in those three areas. But see, we see something else. We're going to go back to that interaction with Jairus in a second. And we're going to see this third episode. We're going to see it in two parts. Um, drawn out because the first two those are the faith that god wants us to have he wants us to have a desperate faith in him and a determined faith in him but this is where we should be warned is that there's a dead faith that we can have look back at the text with me verse 35 okay stay with me everybody looking at your text i want you to look at your Bibles. if you have one be looking in your bible looking at what god says in his word Verse 35, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. Now let me ask you that are parents. You just found out your child was dead. Do not fear, only believe. What do you do? What do you do? You trust? I mean, it's, it flies in the face of everything you've ever heard. We believe. believe. See, God says to us, don't fear, believe. No matter what situation you find yourself, don't fear. Remember what's the most often repeated command in Scripture over and over again? Do not or be afraid. Do not fear. Do not be afraid. Do not fear. Do not be afraid. You see it over and over and over again. Why? Because we're fearful people. Do we fear people? We fear situations. We fear circumstances of life. We're a fearful people. Our country, we are so fearful of just everything. I mean, we're the most safe people ever. I'm amazed. We have car seats. We have side airbags. We've got helmets for kids riding bicycles. We have bottled water. We don't have, drink corn. Oh, we'll never have corn syrup. Oh, it's a devil. You know, I won't eat that, won't eat this, won't eat that. I mean, we're the most safe people. I mean, when we were kids, some of you are older, we drank from water hose, went to schools with asbestos. Right? Did we not? I rode my bicycle for, my mom didn't know where I was. (laughs) I definitely didn't have a helmet. I I mean, (laughs) what was that? (laughs) That's an inappropriate amen right there. (laughs) X for Mike. All right, keeping score. (laughs) I lost my place. Okay. So, we're a safe people. God says, don't fear. Don't be afraid. Only believe. Only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except his inner circle, Peter, James, and John. We see these three individuals, they're part of Jesus' inner core. Remember, he had 70 disciples, he had 12 apostles, and from that he had three, Peter, James, and John, and from that uh, he had John, the one whom Jesus loved. These are his. how he really does, he, it gives us a model of discipleship, actually, that we'll have the one in our life, we'll have three in our life, we'll have the 12. We have different levels of familiarity and intimacy with different people. And Jesus brings Peter, James, and John. And these are three of the biggest authors of the New Testament that are being able and allowed to get a front row seat into this miracle. So Peter, James, and John, they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. Now, what you have going on there in Jewish culture was they had professional mourners. These are people that were paid to cry. They would be, and, and the more important the person was, the more wailers and mourners you would have. So these people come out, Ooh! you know, they're, mo- I mean, moaning. We don't do that much in our culture. I was, we were talking. I was talking with Scott Cap, um, who's the missions pastor at our campus. Many of you know him. He served here for some time, and we were talking about just encounters that we've had when people hear uh, the news of the death of someone. People react differently. As pastors, we get front row seats in people's lives, and we see some people cry, some people are angry, but he said the strangest one, he said, was when I told a Liberian woman that uh, I, she had just learned that her sister or mother, I can't remember which, had died, and he said, Liberians don't mourn as individuals, they mourn as a community. So I walk in the house, and people are like, "Whoa!" And he said, as a, you know, it freaked me out. Because it's so different. But this is, it's a great picture of what was going on in the New Testament. You have these people wailing and mourning. And it's this big spectacle that's going on. As people come out from the town and they're, they're paid to mourn. And when Jesus had entered in verse 39, look with me in verse 39, He said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. Now Jesus would use the term sleeping a lot of times to refer to death. And right now, though, He's saying the child is dead. But he's saying the child is sleeping. It's not an edge of death is what he's doing. Because see, what Jesus doesn't want them to do is he doesn't want them to fawn over him for doing miracles. Jesus was not wanting to draw crowds because of the miraculous. He's like, she's she's sleeping. She's sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother... And those who were with him and went in there where the child was, because sleep is a form of death, especially when Jesus uses the term. He's very ambiguous there. Taking her by the hand, he says to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, which is an Aramaic phrase. Jesus spoke Aramaic. Little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up began walking. She was 12 years of age. They were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this. He didn't want them telling everybody around because as soon as word got out that he raised people from the dead, it's going to be even worse because everybody wants to be around the miracle man. And that's what, not what Jesus' ministry was about. He came to preach the good news, which was that God came to save sinners. He didn't want everybody to be attracted to the spectacle. See, this is what dead faith does, okay? Dead faith loves the show. That's what dead faith does. It loves the show. And there are people, you know what, we could pack this place if we wanted to put on a show. We could. I I could go on and on. I could I could go on and on, and there are pastors in this community who will go on and on about the government. I could pack this place. We're not doing that. That's not what we're about. That's not at all, because that is not honoring to God, and we'll be judged accordingly to that. We're here to preach the word. And when you preach the word and when you exalt Christ, you let God do his work that only he can do. So we're to make sure that we're not putting on a show. That's not what we're here for. And I don't know if you've ever been to a church like that. You got done, you're like, well, that was a great show. I don't know how much preaching was going on, but man, it was entertaining. I think about George Whitfield. George Whitfield was a great evangelist in the um, 18th century. He was from uh, England. He came over to the colonies to preach. He traveled all over. He was an amazing preacher, one of the first preachers to preach outside. Okay? In that time, you preached in full robe, and you had the wig on. Can you imagine if we did that today? I'd look good in a wig. Okay? And, and he would preach in an auditorium, and he starts going outside because he wants to reach people. And he got so famous that at 10 in the morning, somebody found out that he was speaking, he could draw a crowd of 10,000 to 25,000 people without amplification. I mean, that's powerful. But see, he was very dramatic when he preached. And when you, when you have people like that, they want to come and see the show. Even Benjamin Franklin, who is fr- friends with George Whitfield, came to hear him preach. And after George Whitfield died, Benjamin Franklin said, Alas, my friend's prayer wasn't answered. I was not born again. They were friends with one another. Very interesting. But Whitfield was such a powerful preacher that he attracted a crowd, and people came to see what they thought was a show. He wasn't putting on a show. He was preaching the Word. And these people would laugh at him. Now, you see, also, if I want to go back in, a sec- in the text here for a second, after Jesus has come to the house to see everybody, and he says that she's not dead, but sleeping, look at verse 40. What do they do? They laughed at him. They laughed at him. See, when we're taking a stand for Christ, when we're doing what God wants us to do, people are going to laugh to scorn. They're going to laugh at us. When we go through difficulties as a church, you tell other people, they're going to laugh at you. You tell everybody in your family, they're going to laugh at you. They're going to say, why do you believe that? Why do you go through that type of conflict? What's wrong? And they're laughing at, at you. See, that's what dead faith does. It laughs. And even when Whitfield was preaching, he had people up there laughing. There's one guy that would hear Whitfield, and he would start... He would start repeating what Whitfield did as a big joke. And all his buddies would be around laughing. And, and as, as Whitfield's preaching, he gets to a certain part. The guy repeats it, realizes what's been said, falls on his knees, and repents of his sin and invites Christ to be his Savior right then and there. That's how powerful God's Word is. It cuts to the heart. God won't be laughed at or mocked. It might be now. People can do that right now, but unfortunately, and I. I say this with pain: The day is coming when they will receive the fruit of their deeds. God is not mocked; what a man sows, he will also reap, as Paul says in the book of Galatians. So when you see this dead faith, the dead faith loves the show, the dead faith laughs, laughs to scorn, and the dead faith loathes the Savior, loathes the Savior is the Savior. Go back or look into chapter six now. He went away from there and came to his hometown, Nazareth. and his disciples followed him, and on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. Now he'd not done this in Nazareth yet. So they hadn't seen this side of Jesus. Jesus had grown up in the community, He didn't start his ministry until he was 30. His brothers and sisters, so this is a, a, a big sign to show that. Mary and Joseph did get married and had children. These aren't cousins. Okay, this is not because some the Catholic theology teaches that Mary was sinless and never had uh, other children. It's a nice way to put it. But she did. You see that here. So these guys hear Jesus, and this is how they respond. They said, Where did this man get these things? Where is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by His hands? See, they'd seen the show. They they believed, or they had a dead faith, though. They didn't really believe, but they saw it. They saw it happen. So they, they saw the miracles. They saw the mighty works done by His hands, and then they questioned, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not His sisters here with us? And they took offense at Him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty works there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Now, as we we think about that, and we think about the three faiths that I presented today to us, that we have the three faiths. The first one is a desperate faith. Then you have a determined faith. And then you have a dead faith. The question I have to ask us Which faith are we? Which faith are we? What faith do we have? If someone were to look at us, not just as individuals, but as a church, do we have a dead faith? Is Christ alive and well in our church, in our fellowship, and in our lives? Which faith do we have? If we have, and we say that we trust in Jesus Christ, then we have to ask ourselves, do our lives reflect that truth? It says the illustration that's been made is that if you were put on the stand and they said you were a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you of it? Could you be convicted of being a Christian? By your life? By our lives? See, God operates according to our faith. He works in our life according to how much we trust and seek His face. Does not mean that we're not going to have trials? Does not mean that we're not going to have troubles? It doesn't mean that we're not going to go through tragedies? And it doesn't mean that we're not going to experience tribulation. On the contrary, it means that we will have trials. It means we will have tribulation. It means we will go through tragedies, and it means that we will have trouble. It's God's means of getting our attention. Did you know that? I mean, think about it. When you're going through the most difficult times of your life, do you pray better? Do you read the Word better? Do you listen better? We all do. We're all more focused when we go through times like that. God allows things like that because He wants to bring His name glory. I fully believe that God wants to do something in our church that only He can do, that no one else can do, no matter of organization, no matter of advertising, no matter of anything else. And, and those things are good and great, and we, some of them are just common sense things that need to be done but without seeking God's face sacrificially? It's all for nothing. It's all for nothing. Are we seeking God's face? Are we humbling ourselves and asking God to bless our church, to to bring the unsaved? I want to see people saved. I want to see lives transformed. I want to see marriages turned for God's glory. I want to see drug dealers become preachers. I want to see prostitutes become singers. I want to see people's lives transformed by the overwhelming, saturating, life-transforming grace of Almighty God. But that won't happen if we don't pray and seek His face. Why do we expect God to do anything if we're not willing to do it and come to Him and ask Him to do it? We don't just show up on Sunday morning. That's not what we're about. We're the priesthood of all believers. God has entrusted every single believer in this room with the ministry. God has a purpose for your life and wants to use you. To, to do the impossible. What does God say? With God, all things are possible. Even the impossible is possible. And God can do great things through you in your workplace, in your family, in your children, in your spouse, that only he can do because only God is in the business of transforming hearts and minds. He's the only one to do it. That's my prayer for us as a body. That's our prayer for us as a church. As we get ready to, as we're embarking on 2012, as we are gearing up, we got to be praying. So I'm asking you to be in prayer for your leaders. Be in prayer for your brothers and sisters. Come alongside one another. Encourage them. Challenge them to walk more with the Lord. Get into the word more. To step up in, 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 in fellowship and service, to become a small group leader, to invite other people, to recruit them. Say, come to church, come to church, come with us, come see this Jesus. And have that faith that comes to God and says, God, bless us. We're not going to let go. We're going to get to you. If we can just get close to you, then you'll do the rest. That's what we need to do. We need to get as close to Jesus as we possibly can as individuals and as a church. And then watch God work. Amen? Amen. Let's close our our time, this service time, with a word of prayer. We're going to have our benediction. And one last announcement. We have our ABF. We're starting off a new series today called The Miracle of Life Change. How many of you would like to see a change in your life? Oh, you better be putting up your hand because I don't see Jesus walking in this room. He's the only one that doesn't need life change. We all need, and we're all wired for life change to see God work in our life. And that's what I'm encouraging you to do. We're going to have different teachers this month as we go through this, and not just this month, but next month. But I would encourage you to stay for a time of fellowship and food and uh, just be together as we hear the word of God taught uh, together. So let's close with a word of prayer and a benediction so please stand as we close our service time as we hear the words of the holy spirit through the writer of hebrews now may the god of peace brought again from the dead our lord jesus the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant equip you with everything good that you may do His will working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Go in peace.